whenever. That's a blessing and it's a curse all at once, right? But we take those things for granted. Let me ask you about this. How about a physical copy of God's Word? Do you take that for granted? I looked around in my office the other day and just counted the number of English copies of God's Word I have. It's about 20. Not because I just am a hoarder of Bibles, but been given different versions over the years by, by uh, you know, publishers and of different, uh, you know, from more paraphrases to more literal translations. But I have them. And yet, let me tell you, if I had a fire in my house and I had 15 seconds to grab something, what would I grab? I would grab my old beat-up NIV that's been bound twice by Jackie Needfelt. Second Corinthians is falling out. Don't worry, I have another copy, Jackie, but... My point is, the reason I value this is because it's the word I have studied. It's where I have my notes. I know where to find the truth of God's word. And it is precious to me. Our world will probably just say, hey, throw it out, get a new copy and start over. But this is precious to me because the Lord God has spoken to me through his word. How many of us treasure the fact that we have the Word of God in our own language? Again, as Reagan read earlier today, 2 Corinthians, I'm going to start at verse 16, chapter 3 through 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now next week, we're going to focus more on the application of teaching, rebuking, training in righteousness. But if you you notice that not everyone believes that the Bible is God-breathed, and maybe that might be true for you, and if that's so, that's, that's okay. Are they just words written by men? What makes these 66 books so special? Why do we say that they're the Word of God? Is it any different than any other ancient document? Well, the Bible is different. And not just because it claims to be the Word of God, because other documents claim that too. Because in its big picture... There's nothing like it. And we're going to look at some things that are both external, outside of Scripture, and internal, in Scripture, to see six ways in which the Word of God, the Bible, is unique. So this is going to be a bit of a kind of a looking outside the Scriptures to point in, but also inside the Scriptures to point out to its veracity and its, its um, reliability. So let me pray for us, and then we will dig in today. Lord God, we are so grateful that you have given us your word in a language we can understand. We're not translating it. We are hearing it in our native tongue, and you are so gracious 
to bring it to us. And we are grateful that you have given it to us. It is your love letter to us. Now would you take what I have prepared, Lord, and use it, and especially as we dwell upon your living word, which you have called the sword of the Spirit, would it pierce into our hearts, do its work in us, and make us more convinced in the truth of your word and that it needs to be lived out. We're grateful for your word. Increase our faith in you and what you've spoken to us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, earlier we sang that song, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You may know this, you may not know this. That is a quote from Psalm 119, verse 105 in the the King James. Thy word. We don't say thy, thou a whole lot in communicating, do we? But my point is, is that that's very... That's very uh, important because walking in the Bible is about how you live. So feet are made for walking. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. It's going to affect how I live. And a light unto my path. My path is the direction I am heading with my life. You see, while this message is going to talk about external facts, and it's more of a 3,000, you know, 35,000 foot message. Keep in mind that what we believe about God's Word determines how we walk in the path that we are on. So the first thing I want us to look at is that the Bible is unique in its content. In its content. And when I talk about content, I mean in the different forms it's in. Okay, 66 books, it reveals the truth of who we are, who God is. It starts from the beginning. In the beginning, God created. God created man in his image. And that's going to have definite ramifications for where we're going in this series. But as the storyline goes, we rebelled against our creator who he created to have a relationship with him. We were estranged from Him, separated from our Creator. We have a propensity in our hearts towards sin. But God, praise God, but God, has pursued us. Our Creator has come after His rebellious creation to win us back. And that is a major theme of God's Word. To know Him, to love Him, to be saved by Him, to find satisfaction. But there's a... there's a an aspect of God's Word, it's history. It's the narrative, the big story from Adam to Abraham, from Moses to David, from Solomon to Jeremiah, from Daniel to Malachi. And in that period, God promises a Savior. And that Savior eventually comes in the New Testament. But He is a Savior that flips the script of what we think that Savior is going to do as He came to save us, not from the bad guys, the Romans, but to save us from our sin. And then in Acts, it shows how the church is born, the Gospel spreads, not just to the Jews, but to all the nations. For those who believe. And then the epistles talk about the early challenges that the church was facing. Did you know that there was church hurt in the beginning of the church? Did you know there was conflict? When people talk about, hey, let's go back to what the Acts were like. Oh, really? Do you think that those, you know, those things were just done away with? 
We romanticize times in the past. These are the best of times, and maybe the worst of the times, but the times that God has given us. So let's live into that. And then Revelation. What will happen before our Lord Jesus comes back? And what will happen when He does come back? So the Bible is indeed His story. But it's not just history. There are other genres. There's God's laws and His precepts. And we find we are introduced to those in Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And it's, it talks about how we're to live before God, how we're to live with one another. And the, you know, I guess a microcosm of that would be the Ten Commandments. The first four had to do with our relationship with God. The next six have to do with our relationship with one another. But then in the New Covenant, it's not just that the law is given, but it's the heart behind that law. And for those of you who are in the, in the Sermon on the Mount uh, class, that's what you're going to see. Why is God's heart, what is God's law saying in do not commit adultery, do not commit murder? What's God's heart behind that? And then we see even, even in the epistles, I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it talks about what love really is. It's more than a feeling. It's an action that extends to one another. So you've got laws and precepts. Then you have prophecy. God revealing things of the future. Some have already been accomplished. Some are yet to be accomplished. And then you've got the area of poetry. And some of these areas we, we really love, like the Psalms. I love the Psalms. Because it talks to God in every situation. It shows His majesty in, in, in ways that are just beautiful. But it also is sometimes just reviewing and meditating on the truth of who God is. It's in every situation, from the mountaintop to the pit of despair. And you get to like Psalm 42. This is, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. There's a preaching to yourself about who God is and the truth of that. Those are areas we need to traffic in a lot. There's a poetry in our prayer life. But then there's a poetry in romance. The Song of Solomon, which is a, a poem of the joy of marital and sexual intimacy. And sometimes I guess we're maybe even a little embarrassed to read it because it's quite graphic at times. But God is saying... This is what I've created between a man and a woman, and it ultimately is pointing toward what I'm going to bring in the union between God and His church, and Christ and His church. But then we get to things called wisdom literature. And Proverbs is probably the most accessible. I love Proverbs. And if you're into like the daily proverb, here's, here's a, a, a practice. You can line up the chapter of Proverbs with the day of the week, and you know take that practical wisdom in it is skill for living before the living god it's an amazing it's an amazing book i love proverbs but then you have something like ecclesiastes which takes us down a different pathway what happens if i can taste all the good things of this life without limits will that satisfy my soul 
A man who has everything he could ever have experiments with that. And says, where does that lead me? Maybe in today's vernacular, if the Vikings would win the Super Bowl, would that satisfy your soul? And then you have Job, which asks the question, is God still worth worshiping when I suffer, when all the good things of life are lost? And that's not an easy book to enter into. But God reveals Himself beautifully in that book. These are things that are not easy to wrestle with, but God is saying through all these liter- these, this mosaic of literary genres, there's no area of life He does not want to address. No area of life He does not want to address. This diverse scope and sequence are all pointing towards the same big picture. That God is intimately involved in all aspects of life and even beyond. So that's what is beautiful and unique about God's Word. The next part is the Bible is unique in its construction. And I'm just going to read this out of Second Peter. It says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but the prophets... Uh, but, yeah, sorry. Never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's some pieces I want you to look at. Again, and I've already told you, the Bible is a collection of 66 books. But it was written over 1,500 years, from Genesis to Revelation. And it was written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. It has 40 different authors with 40 different backgrounds. A king, a scribe, a doctor, a butler, a shepherd, a fig picker, a Pharisee. All in different situations. In prison, in the palace, on the run, in exile, in jubilation, in lamentation. The Holy Spirit is carrying each one of these authors along to express their individual piece of the pie. The truth that God wants to set forth in them and through them. And yet He's knitting it all together into one interconnected message. It is all interconnected. So what's written in Deuteronomy chapter 17 about the limitations of the king, that he should have a copy of the law, he should not gather a lot of horses, not a lot of wives, not a lot of, a lot of gold, that has a lot of implications for King Solomon and how he lived his life. And if you don't know how that turned out, I'm just going to let you go find that out yourself. There's a lot of interconnectedness between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In Psalm 23, God's, the, the psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When we get to John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and my sheep hear my voice. There's a connection there. And also, there's a connection between what happened on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And at the last minute, God provided the lamb. A ram caught in the thicket. And then on that same mountain, 2,000 years later, 
the Lamb of God who takes the sin, takes the sin of the world, died on that, that same mountain. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's an interconnectedness. They're all knit together in one story. So I want to show you a visual here. I want to show you a visual. So this is the whole Bible. See that one big line in the middle? That's Psalm 119, the longest, longest passage in the Bible, the longest chapter in the Bible. But this is the ways in which the Bible is, every, every arc is a connection from one part of the Scripture to another. There are six, 63,779 connections there, just to give a kind of a visual of how the Bible is interconnected all over that time. 66 books, over 1,500 years, over three continents, 40 authors. They're all interconnected. Now, if this were the work of one man, we'd say, this person is a genius! Wow! How, how did he do that? How did she do that? That's amazing. But this is a 1,500-year project. It took a while. So how did all those connections take place? Is this perhaps evidence of the fingers of God being involved in history, being involved in the authors, being involved in every situation along the way? Just a visual. What do you think? Maybe God is involved in writing His Word. Number three, the Bible is unique in its confirmation. This is gonna, we're going to nerd out here for a second, so forgive me if, if it's a little academic, but we'll, I'll try and keep it moving quickly. The earliest writings of the New Testament were penned more than a little less than 2,000 years ago. The Old Testament, more like 34 to 3,500 years ago. How do we know that we have an accurate copy of God's Word? And this is where the external evidence comes into play. As far as the New Testament is concerned, we have more than 5,000 manuscripts, whether they're full or just, just parts of the Scripture, just by sheer volume. The most of any ancient document out there. The closest, the closest thing to it is Homer's Iliad, which has about 650 plus. And it, the, the copies we have, the farthest back it goes, is uh, 300 B.C. But Homer's Iliad was written in 800 B.C. So there's a 500-year gap. As far as the manuscripts we have, the earliest manuscripts or pieces of Scripture we have are close to the beginning of the second century or, or maybe even the first century. But here's what I'm saying. Those little pieces, they could be copies of the copies of the originals. That's how close they are in proximity. So, New Testament is the most scrutinized ancient document of all academia. But most scholars, whether liberal or conservative, believe we have a, a pretty reliable iteration of what the New Testament authors penned more than a little less than 2,000 years ago. And then as far as the Old Testament, 
Before 1949, the oldest Hebrew scriptures we had were, well, they were 900 A.D. They were penned by a group of Jewish scribes called the Masorites. And they were faithful. I mean, they did a, a, you know, they were very careful. They'd count the letters, make sure they, you know, had um, the word as, as reliable as they could. But human error could slip in from time to time. Well, back in 1949, a shepherd boy threw a, a rock into a cave and heard a crack. And he went in to investigate. And he found these jars. And you know what was in those jars? This Dead Sea Scrolls, written in Hebrew. And originally he was trying to pawn them in the... In the in the uh, marketplace as antiquities. But eventually he said, no, this is a huge discovery. It's bigger than making a, a few bucks. And within that discovery, there are more than 200 Old Testament manuscripts dated back as far as uh, 250 B.C. all the way through 50 A.D. And every book had a manuscript representative of the Old Testament except for Esther. I don't know why, I will say this about Esther. Esther is the only book that doesn't mention the name of God in it, but um, it's still in our Bible. But the treasure of that, of that find was the book of Isaiah, which was found in its entirety, all 66 chapters. And as they compared Qumran or the Dead Sea Scrolls with the Masoretic text, they discovered there were a few variations in spelling, a few variations in maybe grammar, but the content, the content remained the same. It remained reliable. Here's my point. Is that I think we can have confidence, even by scholarship of these days, that God has guarded His Word and kept it in a state where it's going to affect our lives that we can be faithful in following Him and the Word He has preserved over the years. Indeed, it is His God Word that is breathed from Him. If you want to know more about that, I recommend this book. It's called Can We Still Believe the Bible by Craig L. Bloomberg. Uh, it's written at a probably a college level or you know freshman, uh, sophomore level, but it will challenge you, but it's also accessible. So if you want to check that out, I'll be happy to loan it to you, or you can order your own copy on Amazon. But if that's what you like, um, I'd be happy to, to give that to you. There's also internal evidence. You know, in the Old Testament, there are about 300 plus prophecies about what the Messiah would fulfill or connected to. Now, if you're a math nerd, what was the probability that Jesus would just fulfill eight of those? And I'll, I'll just rattle off a few. And that he was born in Bethlehem, that he was born of a virgin, that he entered Jerusalem on a donkey, that the woman of Jerusalem would weep for him at his, at his uh, march to Calvary, that he was rejected by the spiritual leaders, and that his clothing would be cast for lots, and that he would be pierced as he was on the cross. Some math nerd did the calculations and found out that the probability of that would be one in 
I don't even know what the, the number is. It's one and 17 zeros after it. To give you a perspective of that, let's take the, the state of Texas and fill it with Eisenhower silver dollars just like this, two feet deep. And on one of them, we're going to put an X. And then we're going to place you in the middle of Texas. And the probability of you finding that is the probability of someone fulfilling all eight of those prophecies. And Jesus fulfills more than 300. Indeed, there is internal evidence that God is confirming His Word. Number four, the Bible is unique, listen to this, in its contestation. Those who oppose it, those who oppose the Word of God. Okay, so the first three centuries of Christianity, Christianity was kind of outlawed. It was kind of an outlier, right? And here's what the people did. When they got a manuscript, like one of Paul's letters, they'd copy it as quick as possible because they did not know if they were going to be captured and that was going to be destroyed. So they were working really hard to keep a manuscript of some sort. But then things changed. We get to Constantine and Christianity is okay. And so what happens is that uh, a guy named Jerome, he takes the Greek and the Hebrew and he translated it into Hebrew. Uh, excuse me, he translated it into um, Latin. And we call it the Vulgate. Because that's starting to become the land of, of the people. I mean, the language of the people. We get the word vulgar from Vulgate. Because it means common. It doesn't mean it's gross. It just means it's common. Okay? But then as time advances, Latin remains the, the language of the academy and the court, but it's not the language of the people anymore. There are people who can't understand Latin, and it's just like, oh, Latin. Okay, that's what we say at church, right? Agnus Dei Quitualis Peccate Mundi. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which I learned in my public school choir class, not in church. But the people need the Word of God in their own language. And so a guy named Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, he's a, he's a Catholic priest. He's going, you know, I know we're pretty addicted to Latin here, but I'm going to take the Vulgate, the Latin, and I'm going to write I'm going to make a translation for the English speakers. And that's about in 1382. Then the, Re then the Reformation starts to catch fire. And the same thing happens to Martin Luther. And he makes a copy of the German Bible. And this time he's taking the Hebrew and the, and the, um, and the Greek. And a man named William Tyndale does the same thing. But it's not very popular with the king. In fact, he was burned at the stake for that. He was burned by Henry VIII, who was, quote, the defender of the faith. The people need God's word in their own language. And the reason these leaders are putting the kibosh on this is because they want to control it. And so then comes along a guy named Jimmy Stewart, James IV, the House of Stuart. And he has, he commissions 
the King James Bible, which is printed in 1611. And it's been a blessing to us ever since. Now we have found other manuscripts. We have found other uh, that are that are older, and there have been a little some revisions along the way. But it is a reliable translation. But here's the point: Satan, oftentimes, is trying to take away our sword by limiting our access. It's not true here in the United States. My goodness, like I told you, I've got 20 copies of the Scriptures. But it's true in other countries. I'm old enough to remember when people were smuggling Bibles into the former Soviet Union, into China. And you still can't get a copy of, at least legally, of the Bible in China without having it being officially stamped by the government and having their official version. There are 52 countries today in which bringing the Bible, importing it, and giving it away is illegal. Again, we talked about spiritual warfare last week. The devil is trying to take away the sword out of our hand, the sword of the Spirit. Why is it that this word is opposed? The Quran has no such limits. Why is the Bible limited? It's a story of God trying to reach out and redeem men. It's good news. Why is it being opposed? The Bible is unique also in its consummation. You see, the Bible tells us that God is holy. It tells us and shows us His perfect standard. But it also shows us that we're unable to meet that standard. And unless God does something, we are lost and we can never be justified before Him on our own. So God does it for us. He sends His Son to live this life in the flesh without sin, the life that we can't live. He allows, Jesus allows Himself to be sacrificed, to be made an atonement and a horrible, humiliating death on the cross. And then He conquers the foe of the devil and death for us. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 17 summarizes it like this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not God's angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. No other book tells us this. No other book tells us what God did to pursue us and rescue us. Other books, you know what they tell us? Here's how you can be good enough. And if your good outweighs your bad, well, then you're in. Or other books tell you, you know, it's just kind of a continuing cycle. And if you don't give it right this time, well, you'll be reincarnated and you have another shot at it. Unfortunately, that's a lie. The Word of God tells us that it just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. But again, the Gospel contains this good news, this Gospel of what God has done, what we cannot, 
and the life that can be ours because of what He has done. That is a unique component. It is a unique story. And it's not a fairy tale. It's not like, oh, kind of King Arthur or, you know, okay, be careful what I say here for coming Christmas. Um, but it's, it's, not, it's not a fairy tale. You see, Jesus rose from the dead. And He was seen by His 11 apostles who fled from Him, who were cowardly, by the way, when He got killed. And then by more than 500 witnesses. And then by a hostile witness. Someone who was, someone who was opposing Him. The apostle Paul, who was Saul before then. And his life is completely turned upside down, and he becomes the gospel's biggest proponent. But here's my question. If you know this, have you responded to that good news? To the life that God wants to give you in himself? Because I'm going to tell you what, try as hard as you may, there's no way you're going to meet God's perfect standard. I've lived, I was born in the church, I've lived in the church, and one of the lies that we sometimes believe is somehow along the way I get to be, I can be good enough for God. And it's a lie. But the relief is Jesus has paid it all. He's done what we cannot do. Have you responded to that good news? Indeed, to put it in a nutshell, it's John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you repented? Have you turned to Him and said, Jesus, You've done what I could not do. I have sinned. I can't meet God's standard, but You have. So come into my life and change me. That is something that is unique of God's Word that's not true of other ancient texts. And last of all, the Bible is unique in its conclusion. And this is kind of a two-part um, understanding of the aspects here. You see, God's Word is not just information. There's power there. You see, when God speaks, it comes to pass. And we look at Genesis, God speaks and it comes to pass. And this is what he says in Isaiah 55, 10-11, that God's Word will accomplish what it was sent for. As the rain and the snow come down from the heavens and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed and the sower for the sower and bread for the eater, so my Word goes from my mouth it will not return to me empty, but accomplish what I desired it to achieve, its purpose for which I sent it. When God speaks, it happens. So that's one aspect. The second aspect is history. God is taking creation somewhere. It's not just an endless cycle. He's going to bring restoration. And you and I are in the midst of it. You see, the narrative of the Bible starts in the beginning in a garden, right? Let's call it paradise. And he places man and woman in 
the garden. So it's paradise created. Then the man and the woman sin against God. It's paradise lost. And God pursues us and sends His Son. And so it's paradise redeemed. But now we're heading towards what I call paradise restored. When you get to the book of Revelation in chapter 22, you see this picture of a city where there's a river flowing through it and the trees are bringing healing to the nations. It's a garden. And there is no more curse. And I had to choose one passage to read out of this, so I'm going to choose this passage out of Revelation 21. And this is what it looks like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride, dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. For God Himself will be with them and be their God, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The God, what He says, does. This is what's going to happen. I am making everything new. And then He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What God says, He's going to accomplish, and He is taking creation somewhere. His restoration of what He began. He started in the beginning. And we get to be part of it if our faith is in Christ. So these are some unique things about God's Word. There, there are many more. And again, we're going to talk about application more so next week. But I hope these things encourage you. Because there's evidence outside of the Scripture, and there's evidence within the Scripture that this is indeed God's Word. So, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come and close us here. Lord, we're grateful to look into these things, and indeed, I feel overwhelmed by them at some times. I feel inadequate to proclaim them. But they are true nonetheless. And my faith is not in myself. It's in you and your word that you are going to accomplish what you want to in sending forth your word. So accomplish your good work in our hearts, in our lives. Let us take you at your word and know practically that your word is a lamp unto our feet and indeed a light unto our path. Guide us. Keep us walking in your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.